Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of our podcast series, Leadership Forward. My name is Hillary Kennedy, and I'm Program Director for Medicaid Leadership at NAND. NAND is working with CHCS and the Millbank Memorial Fund to bring you a series of discussions which focus on key domains associated with successful public sector leadership. With that said, I'll pass it along for today's discussion. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining today's podcast on Leadership Forward. My name is Erica Brown, and I'm a program officer with the Millbank Memorial Fund. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by two wonderful public sector leaders who are going to help us explore the framework for public sector leadership, talking about the domain of setting and managing strategic direction. Today's conversation will focus on how our guests have put specific behaviors and skills into practice, particularly in their efforts to maintain strategic direction during a crisis and leverage a crisis to drive innovation and change. So today we'll be speaking with Dr. LaQuandra Nesbitt, Director of the District of Columbia Department of Health, and Suzanne Bierman, Administrator of the Division of Healthcare Financing and Policy, for the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services. So LaQuandra and Suzanne, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and welcome to our podcast. I'd like to start out by having each of you take a moment to just briefly introduce yourselves and provide a little bit of background on your professional journey and how you ascended to positions as public sector leaders. So LaQuandra, let's start with you. Hi, Erica, and thanks so much for having me uh, today. Uh, so, and um, actually, if I think about my career trajectory, uh, it was not um, on the plan to end up in the public sector. Uh, when I went to medical school, I didn't really um, entertain this as a career option. Um, I thought of myself as, you know, maybe working in academic medicine or uh, in private practice, being able to work in uh, underserved communities. Uh, but as I went through my training, I really became very interested in working on issues um, related to health policy. Uh, and after spending some time in academic medicine as a family physician uh, and having completed uh, a fellowship in health policy, uh, I really became more interested in how I could uh, focus on uh, public health or have some experience in public health. And so for the past 10 years, I've been in uh, executive leadership roles in governmental public health, uh, having started in um, working in uh, data uh, and planning and figuring out how to really merge um, the use of data to do more policy and planning around public health interventions. Uh, so making sure that the things we were doing in public health were really informed by what the data uh, suggested that we should do. Uh, and so I've kind of advanced in the field of, of governmental public health and population health management uh, in a few cities uh, since uh, that time. Fantastic. Welcome, and thanks again for joining us. So, Suzanne, you uh, serve as the state Medicaid director in Nevada. Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, you advanced to that position and, and what brought you there? Sure. Happy to do that, and thank you for including me today in this important conversation. Um, so, uh, a part of my um, 
background is that I actually did go to school for this, and I just feel incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunities to work in the positions that I have over the past 15 or so years. So did you a dual program in graduate school in both law and public health, and have always been really interested in issues at the intersection of those two fields, and was pretty fortunate right after I graduated to have the opportunity to start working in health policy, um, spent a little bit of time thinking, do I want to go practice law? Do I want to work in health policy? Um, but was fortunate when I first got out of school that I um, took a health policy position, and I've been here ever ever since, and um, have also been fortunate to work in and around the Medicaid program for um, the, the last 15 years, starting in Arkansas, where I worked in uh, long-term services and supports, and really focused on efforts to rebalance long-term care and support home and community-based services, and spent five years working in a position that was both with the, the State's College of Public Health and um, contracted out to Health and Human Services. So did that and was physically housed in um, the Department of Health and Human Services or Human Services in Arkansas, which is also where the Medicaid agency lies, um, and happened to be there at the time that Arkansas expanded Medicaid and was fortunate then to get the opportunity to go work on Medicaid expansion in Arkansas, which was um, achieved through quite an innovative model. Um, so that was, was certainly a highlight and got to spend um, about five years there working on coverage expansion and um, have since moved to Nevada. So now I've had the opportunity to work with Medicaid agencies in, in two different states and um, just really happy and so fortunate to um, have had the opportunity to work on programs that have such impact in
um, a uh, topic um, that I was very familiar with and loved very much uh, during my high school years uh, show up again. Um, and so that kind of disease investigation or math or uh, learning how to do research studies uh, was very appealing. Uh, but by the time that I was in clinical practice, the concept of a master's in public health became more appealing from uh, the health policy and being able to help people get healthcare resources and be able to do it on a larger scale. Uh, so even as I was in uh, clinical practicing in academic medicine and spending time in the clinical environment and wanting to be able to have a greater influence on how my patients could access resources. So thinking about it from, you know, the healthcare management perspective, thinking about why things were different in different states, um, thinking about why some people paid more than others to access resources, um, thinking about the ecosystem from a technology perspective, um, why we uh, would order a test and then couldn't find the results, um, why charts would sometimes be missing in the practice. All of those things are really shaped by um, governmental uh, public health. And then when you think about um, the population health concept and how we manage outcomes and how we get quality care and what why we pay for certain things and don't pay for other things um, really became very motivating. And so I this is an extension of the purpose. So, so I don't have the satisfaction anymore of being able to uh, see a patient in the clinical environment and have an immediate um, outcome for improving, you know, their chronic health condition or, um, you know, giving stitches to uh, a little kid who just had a little incident on a Saturday night, <laughs> either at home because there's a rainy night or um, because they've been out uh, having a sporting event. But you be able to, you're able to have these um, moments of victory over time because you're improving the system. Uh, the system that helps keep people healthy and the system that's there to respond to people uh, when um, things are not going so well for them. Uh, and so that that does still align with the mission and the purpose that I have and, and the broader mission of purpose that makes sure that people, um, regardless of their place and station in life, uh, regardless of their race, ethnicity, ability, gender, um, their income, where they live in this country, uh, can all have access to those same resources. Uh, to to um, improve or maintain their health. Fantastic. Thanks so much for, for talking to us about how you uh, connect your day-to-day work to a, to a larger vision and purpose. Uh, Suzanne, tell us a little bit from your perspective about how your experience working on health policy in a state Medicaid agency, how you connect the work that you're doing to your personal larger vision and purpose. Thank you. Um, I, I would agree with Dr. Nesbitt and say, you know, really it's keeping your eye on the mission and knowing that the work that we do is so critically important and makes such an impact in many, many people's lives. In Nevada, Medicaid now covers close to 25% of the population, um, one of the state's largest insurers. Um, so it's really, you know, keeping your eye on the, the big picture on a daily basis and um, knowing that we're coming to work and have the great opportunity to spend our work days um, identifying ways to improve health and um, improve populations and the lives of real citizens um, of, of our state is just absolutely critical and is the inspiration that I think keeps us motivated to do this work, which can be <laughs> grueling and have long hours. Um, so I think 
always tying back the, uh, all of that to the larger purpose and knowing that um, these programs really, really do make a difference in many Americans' lives. So the key part of it for me, um, and certainly don't have complete control over all of our schedules and, and that sort of thing, but for me, uh, we went through um, a pretty intense strategic planning process last summer, and I really try to make that meaningful on a daily basis when, you know, as we think about our, our long-term goals, but also try to tie it back to daily activities and our monthly reporting, making sure that that's reflective of our strategic plan and trying to keep you know, our eye on the prize, even when it comes to things like our calendars and making sure that our scarce resources, which, you know, for us, uh, certainly time is one of those, really reflect our priorities um, and to the extent possible, our strategic vision. So just trying to allocate our resources and time and making sure that we're really focused on um, our strategic priorities and knowing at the end of the day that that all really matters um, for the populations that come on these programs for their health care services. That's great. Thanks, Suzanne. Uh, so I want to dive into the leadership framework and talk about some of the core competencies in this uh, domain that we're discussing today. So, uh, LaQuandra, you talked a little bit about uh, how you, um, you know, you're, you were interested in math and you're a data person. I know that. Uh, another one of the competencies that we're talking about is communication. So, uh, you have been the, the public health official who has been responsible in D.C. for leading us through a, a global pandemic. I imagine that has uh, come with many, many communications challenges. Will you talk to us about maybe just one of those communications challenges that you faced as, as a public health official and how you've dealt with it? Yeah, people are often uh, struck by this and, um, you know, when you're in leadership positions and roles and in various places in your leadership journey, you go through a lot of, you know, leadership development programs, et cetera. You take all of these assessments. Um, and I am an introvert. Most people are often taken aback by that. And there's a difference between being shy and being an introvert. And um, you, you, Many people know is, uh, as a leader, you develop many adaptive behaviors. Um, and so my uh, adaptive behaviors are kicking in uh, full throttle uh, during this period of time with the extensive amount of uh, interaction I have uh, as a communicator. Um, I never have had any challenges, however, with uh, communicating vision, purpose, mission, uh, and being able to do that with people who are at various levels in the organization uh, and take great pride in being able to do that, um, as well as having to um, explain very complex information to people uh, and um, find it a personal failing, actually, a personal professional failing um, when people don't get the complex information that we are trying to um, communicate. And in this pandemic, um, if people can't understand the message or the behaviors that we want them to adopt or the direction that we're trying to move in as a collective, uh, we can't make the progress that we need to make. Um, I think the biggest communication challenge that uh, not only I face as a health officer, but many of my colleagues is communicating the um, information that we need to communicate because we have to do so um, honestly and with integrity and doing so with empathy. 
uh, because people are being impacted in uh, tremendous ways. These are unprecedented times. Uh, we're asking people to make uh, tremendous sacrifices, um, uh, personal ways that uh, many people find challenging. Um, there's been great disrupt- disruption to people from an economic perspective. Uh, and we know that we're going to be in this for a, a long term. And some of the information that we have to share about what the future holds, uh, we want to be honest about that. Uh, although we're in public health and we're speaking often from the public health perspective, uh, sometimes it comes across as if we are not empathetic to the other things that are consequences of this pandemic. Uh, and so that has been a tremendous challenge um, to balance from a communication perspective uh, and being able to ensure that um, folks will understand that we too are human, um, that we too have uh, are experiencing this pandemic uh, just like everyone else uh, from the potential um, health consequences. Uh, we are connected to people as families. Uh, we are connected to people as uh, potentially being parents. Uh, who have uh, students who can't attend school either through the K through 12 or the higher education space, uh, and also have family members who may uh, and friends who are small business owners who are experiencing hardship as well. Uh, so again, it's that balance of communicating um, honestly and with integrity and with empathy. That's really great and not not something that you often hear about when we discuss communications and leadership. So I really appreciate you uh, pointing that out, especially in such uh, uncertain times and difficult times for uh, so many people across the country. Um, Suzanne, turning to you as a state Medicaid director, you, I, I'm sure, have been responsible for overseeing major, major changes to a very complex public program in record time. So who have been the most important stakeholders that you've needed to communicate with during uh, this pandemic? And what has your approach to communications been with these different groups of people? Thanks for the question. Um, Yes, I would say communications have been incredibly important through the course of the pandemic, and we have had to move quickly. So there were a number of actions that state Medicaid directors, uh, I think uniformly almost across the country, um, all put into place when the federal government made additional flexibilities um, available to Medicaid programs, um, 1135 waiver authorities, some um, other CMS processes that enabled us to do things like temporarily change our prior authorization requirements, um, provider enrollment requirements, that sort of thing to just really ensure that we were able to meet the needs during this global pandemic and also promote social distancing and still provide care at the same time. So certainly worked through a lot of those changes early on um, in March. And um, I would say that communicating both internally and externally has been critical and there's a time crunch on all of this. And so I would really say um, doing our internal communications first so that everybody on the team is on board the same implementation plan and then quickly being able to turn around and explain that to, to external stakeholders has really been critical. And in Nevada in particular, we um, have, have gone through the, the public health aspects of the pandemic. Um, and I know all states have also felt the, the economic um, 
the session aspects as well. But Nevada has been particularly hard hit, just given the nature of the state's economy, very um, heavily dependent on tourism. So our state has actually um, been in, in a budgetary crisis that required um, a special legislative session and pretty significant cuts to the Medicaid program. Um, in terms of provider reimbursement rates this summer. So it was a similar experience with both the internal and external communications being critically important and um, having a lot of very technical activities that needed to be performed by staff and having everyone on the same page and clear about those so then we could then pivot and focus on external communications and be transparent with our providers and other stakeholders about what was happening and what we were doing. But there is, um, you know, uh, some amount of time that it takes to, to get the, all of the internal components ready and um, uh, ready to go before you can start messaging uh, those communications for external stakeholders. So really trying to, to manage both of those pieces as quickly as possible has been something that we've been working on um, over the last six months. That's great. Suzanne, that's definitely a theme we've heard in some of the other conversations on different topics, uh, whereby a lot of public sector leaders have emphasized the importance of starting internally and getting things in order before, uh, you know, before transitioning and thinking about external audiences. Um, so the next question that I have for both of you is to think about what, what you foresee happening as a result of the COVID crisis. And in the past, uh, you know, major public health crises have often led to uh, policy reforms at the state, you know, local, state, and national levels. And a quote that we've heard a lot lately in our conversations is, you know, to not let a good crisis go to waste. I'm sure you've You've heard that as well. Um, so from your perspectives, what do you think are the most important policy or programmatic changes that should come out of COVID? Um, and are you doing any planning within your agencies and departments now to ensure that these changes get into place in D.C. and in Nevada? Um, so, Laquandra, why don't we start with you and, and hear how you're thinking about the future? Sure. So I think, you know, Suzanne has kind of mentioned some of these things in her uh, previous response, but it, there's a lot of uh, adaptation that uh, we've put in place during the public health emergency. Uh, and we put them in place with the um, expectation that some of it will sunset uh, during the public health emergency. But it's also been a great opportunity for us to revisit, revisit um, how much of it is necessary in our uh in our non-emergency um, state. And uh, some of them we will have go away. Uh, so some of the waivers that we put in place for um, uh, professional licensors, some of those things will revert. Um, but then there's some things that we've had to be able to look at in terms of access to care and telehealth regulations. Um, and it's been a great opportunity for us to put an infrastructure in place to evaluate um, how we should be looking at telehealth services. Uh, so, for example, um, there have been things in place for audio-only visits versus audio and visual visits. Uh, what the originating designation should look like, uh, destination should be. Uh, so it is, has expanded the ability for more services, telehealth services, to begin in the home uh, instead of having be, to be from one healthcare facility to the other. Uh, and who can uh, participate 
in telehealth visits in terms of the types of uh, practitioners or um, paraprofessionals being able to assist individuals. And I think that that can be extremely instrumental in expanding access to care. And it helps us to also think about the types of technologies that will enable healthcare. Uh, so what types of um, age and ability appropriate um, technology devices can we be distributing to uh, individuals to better help them manage their health conditions in, at home? Uh, so there, those are real opportunities for us to expand access to care and also look at uh, what we pay for that could have the potential to improve health outcomes. Um, co- uh, when we had conversations nationally about access to uh, data, uh, and people were really stunned, very stunned about the laboratory uh, system uh, in the U.S. and why certain data elements were not available and understanding that as a function of, um, in some jurisdictions, the antiquated laboratory infrastructure, uh, what data is collected on laboratory forms. And these were things that people have been advocating for for decades. Uh, in terms of certain types of demographic information to be um, collected. Some states had made it mandatory, but many fields were still incomplete. And there was a big push um, at the federal level for all laboratories to now have to collect that information. And so the degree to which enforcement will happen will be very interesting. But it's been um, a huge influx of resources in many jurisdictions to update laboratory information management systems to be able to have more electronic lab reporting and electronic case reporting coming into health departments. And it's made us question um, how uh, vigilant or were we being overzealous would probably be the best term in terms of this health information technology infrastructure we find and put in place and having perfectly the enemy of the good. So I think we've gotten the ball running, rolling and a lot more jurisdictions for interoperability um, that's going to help us accelerate the pace of change in a way um, that we weren't doing before and have brought down some of the regulatory barriers that were probably too onerous and unnecessary. And the last thing that I'll talk about is the diversity of the workforce. Um, and the, I mean diversity in two different ways. Some jurisdictions license, um, certify, and um, register uh, fewer types of health professionals than others. And we have a lot of huge vision for uh, the patient-centered medical home and the healthcare team uh, and being able to improve patient outcomes. But now we really have a better appreciation for having everyone work to the highest level of their training. And when we start to talk about workforce shortages, when we start to talk about the impact of furlough workers because of the impact of COVID-19, it's made us have a greater appreciation for how different members of the healthcare team are really qualified to do certain types of, uh, or play certain types of roles, to administer certain types of uh, procedures and certain types of tests and to uh, see certain types of members of the healthcare team in an appropriate setting. And so as we have seen it happen, uh, during this public health emergency without uh, substantial impact or any impact on patient safety and quality, many of us are going to be revisiting what types of roles uh, those health professionals and care professionals can play a long term and what what settings um, would be appropriate for them to do so. Uh, and then um, the last, the other part, caveat for diversity is really looking at racial and ethnic diversity 
Um, we have uh, different studies that have been put out about the impact or the outcomes related to racial concordance uh, and outcomes for racial concordance. And so this, again, uh, with the disparities that we're seeing in outcomes will have us looking at how we pipeline uh, more people um, from racial and ethnic minority groups into different healthcare professions across the continuum. So I, I think those are some of the things that, uh, the three things that I think I would like to highlight about an opportunity for change in a post-COVID environment. That's wonderful. Wakanda, um, clearly you're, you're thinking to the future and these are really important issues, Suzanne, I'm sure that are you know, relevant to work in Nevada as well and with a heavy emphasis on um, technology and a goal of expanding access and improving quality of care. Uh, does anything strike you or anything that you wanted to add to what Wakanda has already said about the future and important policy or programmatic changes that should result from COVID? Well, first, I think hopefully some of the main takeaways from COVID will just highlight the critical importance of public health. I'm hoping that that is one silver lining that comes out of the COVID-19 public health pandemic. And um, related to that, but more specifically, too, we are still challenged in terms of our vaccination rate. So again, hoping that this raises um, the level and awareness of just how critically important vaccinations are in Nevada. That's something that we've been working on and hope that, you know, there's some synergy there and looking for silver linings. Hope that that is one. Um, completely agree with Dr. Nesbitt about the role of telehealth, and um, Nevada has actually been working with a number of other Western states, um, Washington, Oregon, California, and Colorado, in uh, a West Coast compact. And the first issue that this consortium of states took up was telehealth, really realizing how important it has been during the time of COVID, and um, Nevada and many other states even during non-global health pandemic times, still struggle with access and uh, issues related to health professions, workforce shortages. So I really wanted to catalyze some of the gains that we've seen um, in telehealth expansions through COVID and work together collectively to try to keep that momentum going and push for additional flexibility related to telehealth policy even post, post-COVID. So um, those states work together put together a framework with overarching principles to really look at how we can strategically use telehealth going forward. And I know the National Association of Medicaid Directors has been somewhat involved in these activities as well as, you know, uh, beyond the Western states, lots of Medicaid programs are, are seeing the same thing and have the, the same desire to continue uh, making use of telehealth. But we, um, as a part of that, also really want to evaluate it and do some um, program effectiveness studies, figure out, you know, where it makes sense post-COVID, where we're getting um, the best results from using that technology, also ensure that it's being used in an equitable manner, um, patient confidentiality concerns are addressed, um, that it is actually enhancing access, but um, ensuring that it's not having a disproportionate impact on certain populations and that um, in-person services when it's... uh, Safe to do so, and I know at this time, um, you know, we are uh, having an uptick in, in, in person services as well. As well, but just thinking post COVID, um, how it can play a role in promoting access um, and really giving patients additional choice, and um, just continuing to push for 
that type of additional flexibility from the federal government, um, you know, but also being smart and strategic about it, want to be cognizant of fraud, waste, and abuse type concerns and just figure out um, for the long term the role that telehealth should, should continue to play in all of our programs. So that we also feel like is a silver lining. We've really seen it um, play a critical role in ensuring that patients could continue to have continuity of care during COVID and while we wanted to promote social distancing, but also feel like in rural areas and also some of our urban underserved areas that there, there really is a role for um, telehealth to continue to expand going forward. So that is something that um, we are working on um, with a number of other states. So we just want to highlight and reiterate that we think that that is, is a silver lining from COVID as well. That's fantastic. So want to jump in our last few minutes to, to the last question that I have for both of you, which is, you know, as public sector leaders, what advice would you give to colleagues in other states and other jurisdictions for thinking about a long-term vision for health care, for public health, and who really want to prioritize health equity? How would you advise them to think about setting a vision, to execute that vision, and any takeaways that you have from your own experiences that you would encourage others to think about? So, Ponder, we'll turn to you. Yeah, I, you know, we've had some successes in this area, um, and I have found success in this space both in uh, Louisville and in D.C. And just the, you know, the short end of it is that we find success by finding opportunities for alignment uh, with sector partners um, in other uh, areas. So, you know, going into the conversations, um, not necessarily focused on um, you should do, I need you to do this because it is going to improve health outcomes, uh, but finding out what their priorities are and leveraging uh, their priorities that are going to have the greatest impact on health outcomes. Uh, so whether it be that, um, you know, they're trying to find uh, cost savings in uh, multi-unit public housing uh, and they're building new units and making the suggestion that having those units be smoke-free would say save money on turning over those units uh, every time a new tenant moves in um, has had been a good way for us to work with um, uh, the, uh, the housing authority in Louisville, Kentucky, to make a brand new building smoke free, uh, and also um, working with uh, housing partners uh, in DC using a similar approach. So, you know, really looking for some opportunities for alignment um, where you get a benefit for health impact um, for secondary and tertiary smoke exposure, uh, and they get an impact for a cost reduction. So. Um, at the, in the end of the day, the health outcome and the health benefit uh, is achieved. So, um, and these are all equity things that cross sectors. I could give tons of other examples, but I think that's just really one quick one where it's not always um, so much about winning the health argument over with your uh, colleagues and other sectors, but uh, working for um, achieving a mutual goal. Fantastic advice. Suzanne, any advice that you would share with colleagues from across the country who are listening and who want to prioritize health equity? I would really just suggest thinking about all of your issues from a health equity lens. That's something that we're trying to do with all of our policy decision making, everything from 
what should be the requirements in our new managed care contracts to, you know, what sort of benefit enhancements um, would we want to put forward. Um, so really just including that as a key and critical part of decision making. And I would also say using focused data, make sure that um, you're collecting data that could help inform these conversations. And really do a lot of listening and a lot of community outreach and stakeholdering. Um, you know, there's that phrase, nothing about me without me. And I think just really making sure that we have um, inclusive conversations and um, are being good community partners. Fantastic. Well, Laquandra and Suzanne, want to thank you both so much for being part of our uh, podcast today to uh, talk about the leadership framework. You, uh, you know, we, you both at the beginning talked about your vision and what motivates you to do this work and your real focus on the system, public systems, and how your impact is able to go beyond uh, just working with individuals to improve their individual level outcomes to focusing on populations and how you're affecting systems as a whole. You know, we talked about communications and, and some of the challenges. You both gave great examples and advice, Laquandra, about uh, the importance of communicating with empathy. Uh, Suzanne, the importance of communicating internally first before spreading your message externally. Uh, we talked about policy changes and things that should come out of COVID. Uh, and, and Laquandra shared with us the importance of um, putting in place measures that will expand access and whether that's through new technology uh, or things that can improve health outcomes by diversifying the workforce. Um, Suzanne, you talked about Hopefully, one result to come of COVID is uh, an acknowledgement of the importance of the public health sector as a whole, which I know is a, uh, something that many public health leaders share as they've been advocating for this for many years. And then finally, we talked a little bit about health equity and Laquandra's advice for the state and local leaders who are listening is to think about establishing partners with other agencies and branches of government, understanding their priorities and what's most important to them. Uh, in order to enable alignment. So think not about how can you win the argument, but how can you find alignment with your other colleagues in order to improve health outcomes? Um, and Suzanne encouraged us to think about health equity as a critical part of the decision-making process overall. So I want to thank you both again for spending your time with us to talk through this podcast, for your excellent uh, advice to other public sector leaders. And we hope that uh, we are able to follow your work and uh, we know you'll continue being incredible public sector leaders in D.C. and in Nevada. So thanks again for your time. Thank you all. Thank you.